Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to podcast number 10 in our series on the second half of world history. In podcast number nine, we ended the, Ameri- the excuse me, the French Revolution by looking at the last two phases and how that bloody phase of the reign of terror would be eventually replaced or succeeded 11 months later with phase three, the Thermidorian reaction. Both, however, were extremely deadly. That said, I also ended with, despite the fact of this, our longing to believe that we lived happily ever after, that danger still lurked within France from the outfringes of society who was unhappy or who were unhappy with the outcome of the French Revolution. Eventually, a mob formed and would be defeated quickly by Napoleon Bonaparte. So in podcast number 10, we're going to look at Napoleon's rise and eventually in the age of romanticism, where we'll also look how humanity began to look at ourselves differently than before. In terms of Napoleon, the question reigned even after a whiff of grape shot, as it became known, dispensed the crowd and got rid of them, at least temporarily, was the French Revolution really over? Napoleon supported the gains of the French Revolution and the changes that came out of it. That, of course, made him popular with the commoners. However, he also led several military expeditions, and with the support of the people, as well as the Italians from Austrian domination, he attempted but failed to overthrow the British through controlling Egypt. Napoleon was smart enough to know that a direct attack on Great Britain was most likely going to end in failure, as it had been over 700 years since any individual on the continent of Europe was able to successfully conquer Great Britain. So what he wanted to do was to attack them from the outskirts by cutting off their access to their colonies in Asia. However, that failed. And as a result, Great Britain aligned with Austria as well as Russia to develop a coalition to control Napoleon and his army and even possibly to defeat it. By 1802, Napoleon had isolated Austria by signing security pacts behind Austria's back with Russia as well as Great Britain. It was once again, what one would argue, a game of chess where the map of Europe was literally the chessboard. And instead of having plastic or wooden rooks, bishops, and knights, these were real people. Napoleon won further and further support from the French commoners as he sought to raise the stature and the reputation of France. In 1804, he established what became known as the Napoleonic or Civil Code, 
And what this did was safeguarded property for men. In other words, for the commoners. He also continued to abolish hereditary perks and replaced it with a merit system that one rose within the ranks only or based on the past performance, not because of somebody's last name. He also made amends with the Pope, with the head of the Roman Catholic Church, by making Roman Catholicism the national religion. However, he stopped short of making it a requirement that all French citizens follow Roman Catholicism. So you notice here, in just a quick example, how he's able to gain favor within the Roman Catholic Church, but also still maintaining the favor of the people by not forcing them to choose. As a result of his international campaigns, as well as his domestic policies, he was crowned Emperor of France in none other than Notre Dame in downtown Paris in 1804. With the approval of the French government, an election by the people, who of course wanted France to be considered an empire, thereby extended that term emperor to none other than Napoleon. As a result of this, empire returned to Western Europe and would dominate the map for the next 11 years. These actions were not lost on Great Britain, as well as France's other counterparts on the map of Europe. Great Britain formed once again another counter or coalition to counter France's potential moves. Rather than wait for this new quote-unquote emperor to possibly attack an unguarded and unsuspecting Great Britain once again, Great Britain took it upon itself to declare war on France. Napoleon, not one to walk away from danger or a potential battle or war, immediately sent out the French Navy to attempt to fight Great Britain on the high seas, where eventually the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 beat the French back on water, but not necessarily on land. As a result of this defeat of France, Great Britain would laud its victory at Trafalgar by having anniversary celebrations commence throughout the coming centuries. Fast forwarding all the way to 2005, I happened to witness this firsthand because the United States of America was invited by Great Britain to participate in a military or naval parade in the Atlantic Ocean south of Great Britain as it celebrated its 200th anniversary of its defeat of France. Put America, specifically, of course, as President of the United States, George W. Bush, this put him in an awkward spot. If he responded favorably to Great Britain by sending a world-class aircraft carrier, which is what Great Britain wanted, how could the French not interpret that negatively? If George W. Bush decided to forego participating in the parade to appease France, how could this not be looked at negatively from Great Britain's perspective? So what George W. Bush did, more or less, was to split the fine hairs in this particular case. He sent America's oldest 
aircraft carrier, the one that I happened to be a visitor on, the CV-67, the John F. Kennedy. The John F. Kennedy was America's last diesel-powered aircraft carrier. And he sent that one instead of the world-class nuclear aircraft carrier fleet that Great Britain was recommending. So it was a way to acknowledge to France that, yes, I understand your position, which is the reason then why I'm more or less sending an outdated aircraft carrier, but in the same token, appeasing Great Britain as well by participating in the naval parade. Great Britain's response, however, was not necessarily favorable as they took the aircraft carrier, the John F. Kennedy, and threw it more or less at the back of the parade because, of course, it was an outdated and outclassed diesel aircraft carrier. So again, this battle and this victory by Great Britain at the Battle of Trafalgar would have repercussions centuries later. But getting back to where Britain was with France, more specifically Napoleon here, he more or less had better luck, or Napoleon had better luck on land by defeating the Italian and Germanic states, as well as Austria and Prussia. On land, Napoleon was a force to be contended with. He would then, after defeat of those continental powers, Napoleon then, riding on the wave of victory, turned his attention back towards Great Britain once again and formed what became known as the Continental System. And what the Continental System did is it banned all continental countries from trading with Great Britain. Napoleon was trying to do what eventually an American president by the name of Thomas Jefferson would do, would be to hit Great Britain in the wallet by boycotting British goods. The problem was you cannot financially strangle a Great Britain who has colonies truly throughout the world. All those economic boycotts did to the French was the same thing that it did to the Americans. It only hurt them. Great Britain still had markets, consumer markets, as well as markets for raw materials throughout the globe. Thomas Jefferson cutting off America did nothing to hurt Great Britain financially any more than, than Napoleon did cutting off the continent of Europe. It would eventually be a severe economic recession both in America and in continental Europe that would push American President Thomas Jefferson and Napoleon Bonaparte back to the negotiating table and relieving those boycotts. However, in terms of international stability, Spain and Austria resisted French control and silently and secretly rebuilt their forces. Russia would redevelop its relationship with Great Britain and the continental powers that were anti-France formed a coalition in order to beat back a more powerful and ever increasingly powerful France. However, France was in danger of what we would argue was strategic with of the strategic law of natural overstretch. France's victories was overextending a French army and was certainly overextending the French treasury. However, Napoleon wouldn't be persuaded to stop his 
land campaigns as he sought to invade his biggest prize, Russia, in 1812. In order to stave off Russian ambitions and to punish them from, for allying themselves with other continental powers as well as Great Britain and expand into Eastern Europe, Napoleon extended his dream to dominate the continent by beating Great Russia back. However, Napoleon failed to recognize the dangers of his campaign. Number one, all Russia did was to withdraw further and further into the Russian interior. Remember that France is smaller than the current size of the modern-day state of Texas in the United States. Russia is 1.7 times larger than the entire United States combined. As a result of this, little France had an extreme difficulty trying to subjugate and conquer that massive Russian interior. All France got was a pirate victory with every city and town that the French army successfully advanced to. They found nothing more than a burned out city or town with no gains in which to claim the spoils of victory. What's worse is that Napoleon invaded too late in 1812 as, the, as Russia continued to work its way into fall and winter with, an, with a woefully unprepared French army. As a result of that, Austria, Prussia, and Russia, funded great, by Great Britain, joined forces and invaded France behind Great Britain's behind Napoleon's back. France now, the French troops under Napoleon, had a Russian enemy in front of them and a combined continental army enemy behind them. And on top of that, the continental system of Europe would now experience one of the harshest winters on record. Napoleon had no choice but to accept defeat and return to France with the soldiers that he could save, which were not many. Napoleon left France with over 600,000 soldiers at his disposal he would return with less than 100,000. He would lose a half a million men to starvation and being froze to death by the harsh Russian winter. The French people could tolerate him no longer and he would be exiled from France to the island of Elba in the Mediterranean Sea. With the power vacuum in France, as a result of the Napoleon's defeat. The Congress of Vienna was formed by a quadruple alliance of Great Britain, Prussia, Russia, and Austria. Where was France? They were sidelined. As the four major powers agreed that no European power shall dominate the continent. As the Congress of Vienna was meeting to draw this out, Napoleon would escape the island of Elba, raise a primitive army, but would be defeated again by the British at Waterloo and would be exiled permanently to St. Helena. That would end the reign of Napoleon and the age of Napoleon, while the quadruple alliance, again of Great Britain, Russia, Prussia, and Austria, collectively would make sure 
that a powerful France would never have the ability to wreak havoc on the continental system of Europe. That brings us to an end of the age of Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars. Simultaneously, while this is going on in the early 1800s, a new movement was burgeoning out of the mindsets of the Europeans known as the Romantic Movement. Simply put, the Romantic Movement was a response to the Age of Enlightenment. But in this case, imagination would replace reason. The Age of Enlightenment, it's not as though as that it was against the use of imagination, but it dominated with thinking was that reason should govern all human action. The Romantic Movement didn't necessarily reject that, but definitely allowed the use of, ima of imagination to, have, to contribute to human thought. One of the thinkers to come out of this was none other than Rousseau, who stressed the differences between, for example, a child's mind and an adult's mind, and pushed the idea that children should be free to learn through trial and error. In other words, Rousseau sought to redefine what we term failure. That failure did not have to mean an end to progress. That failure, if interpreted another way, can be a step towards success. In other words, failure doesn't have to mean end. Giving up is what ends any kind of embarkment by any human being to make the world a better place. Through the use of trial and error, failure, as Rousseau would claim, should be nothing less than a step towards progress. Look at the way the 20th century writers and philosophers would build on that, to the point that one of my lines at the bottom of every syllabus that I've ever written for all of my classes in my 20 plus years at teaching at the college level is that failure is nothing more than a step to success. That's it. In order to increase your rate of success, you have to increase your rate of failure. As I'm introducing myself and the world of history to my new students that I have in face-to-face -face classes every semester, I ask students who think that they are perhaps experts in anything to raise their hands. So occasionally, and for example, I've heard students raise their hand and say that they would be willing to bet that they were better than anybody else in that particular classroom at martial arts, because I had a student that was a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. I've had students claim that they were experts in a particular video game. Other students claim that they were experts playing a particular instrument because they've been playing it literally since they were three or four years old. So when these students raise their hands to try to claim that they are an expert in whatever it is that they engage in, I don't ask that in order to prove themselves, but rather I then ask the class in its entirety, 
that these are the experts, the experts in Taekwondo, in playing the flute, in a particular video game. I also then immediately follow with who are the greatest failures in the classroom in Taekwondo, playing the flute or playing a video game and getting to the highest level. Who are the greatest failures? And occasionally students will answer, well, I suppose the student that never tried. Admittedly, that could be. But what if nobody has an interest in a martial arts or playing an instrument or in video games? That doesn't make them a failure. It just makes them not interested. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. Who are the greatest failures in those fields? And usually a lull kind of descends across the classroom as they think of it. And I say, experts, raise your hand once again. And the martial arts experts raises their hand, as well as those playing an instrument and the video game. I said, those are the experts because they are also the ones that have failed the most. How could they succeed if they never failed? Do we really think that the martial arts expert became an expert because truly they never made a wrong move, that they automatically knew how to throw a roundhouse kick, how to throw a punch? Do we really think that the expert in playing an instrument never played a wrong note, never misplaced one of their fingers? Of course not. They're experts because they have done that so many times. But afterwards, always got up to try again. Immanuel Kant also is a product of the age of Romanticism. And the reason being is because, as he said, backing up Rousseau, that humans literally do learn through trial and error. Think about it where Kant comes from. Imagine if you had never ridden a bike in your life. And imagine instead of actually putting yourself on the seat and your two feet on the pedals, imagine that you take a 16-week course on riding a bike. You learn the history of the bike, who the greatest inventors were of the technology incorporated in the modern-day bike, who are the greatest bikers and racers throughout world history. And imagine watching video after video on people riding bikes. And you watch YouTube videos on how to be the best biker, how to be able to race as fast as possible or balance yourself in an off-the-trail type bike path. Notice you can sit back and experience all of that. But do you really think that you're going to be able to throw your rear end on a bike seat? Put those two feet of yours on the pedal and automatically start biking as though you're a pro at it? Of course not. Humans learn by doing, Kant says. And who are we to argue against it? So this is, in this podcast, in our 10th one on the second half of world history, we have looked at, extremely briefly admittedly, the age of Napoleon on continental Europe, the advances in warfare as a result of quote-unquote empire returning to Europe once again, 
And we also then dove into the age of romanticism to see how human thought was continuing to move forward as a product of the age-old time of the Enlightenment. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments that you might have. And if you liked what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.